Hello and welcome to Behind the Frontline podcast. The podcast that asks the very simple question, how can we change the world? I'm your host, Dr. Adil Khan. In this season, I will be chatting with expert guests to try and understand how COVID-19 impacts society in different ways. I hope to share the insights of these great minds with you and hope to inspire you to change the world. Please remember to rate and subscribe wherever you enjoy your podcast. I look forward to your comments and your reviews. You are welcome to send me a voice note using the links below to be featured in future episodes. The 11th of March marks exactly one year since the World Health Organization announced the COVID-19 outbreak is considered a pandemic. Take yourself back to that period. Do you remember all that uncertainty we had? We weren't sure how best to protect ourselves. We weren't sure that we would have enough basic personal and protective equipment for our frontline healthcare workers. It was during this period of uncertainty that a few organizations stood out and helped us make sense of these chaotic times. One of these organizations is Hope for Health. Hope for Health is an NPO that has special interest in the health sector. They were advocates for the access to equitable health and strongly champion for practical health education for everybody. Since lockdown began, the Hope for Health team have run various COVID-19 education engagements and community-based interventions. Hope for Health is changing the world. In this episode, I speak with Hope for Health founder Josiah Snyder. Josias is a well-known public health advocate and has been instrumental to the success of the organization over the past year. We celebrate the successes of the organization, highlight their current challenges and look ahead at the public health opportunities for them beyond COVID. Josias, thank you for your time and welcome to Behind the Frontline podcast. Could you tell listeners a little bit more about yourself? I'm Josias Naidu. Um, I'm an audiologist. I've been in private practice for 11 years now. For, for the bulk of that 11 years, I've been very involved in the health sector and uh, working with the NHI committees and various uh, health associations along the way. Um, I currently serve as the deputy chairperson for the National Healthcare Professionals Association. Um, and um, I'm also the founder of Hope for Health. We, as a group of colleagues, uh, felt that when COVID-19 came across the country with, with the, with the uh, ferocity that it did, there was a lot of gaps in our ability to respond and react efficiently towards it. And these gaps tended to compromise the, the, the lives of our health professionals who uh, we've now started using the term frontline heroes, as well as patients, and, and, and it strained the health system quite extensively. And Hope for Health was born out of that. And, we, we decided as, as health professionals, as, as, as colleagues, to put together an organization that would be able to stand for health education, health activism, and to represent uh, the needs of both the practitioners and the patients. And you know, while we were catalyzed by, by, by COVID, we focused a lot during the COVID, between the first wave and, and, and subsequent wave, but our hope and our, and our aim is to persevere throughout and to to come outside of COVID and start being a a force to be reckoned with in the health sector outside of just this pandemic, you know, to drive education, 
to drive access to proper healthcare, to, to champion for the, for, I'm going to say the need for NHI. Not a lot of people believe that we totally need NHI, but just before this interview, I was wearing a t-shirt that says proudly NHI. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, I may be biased towards uh, our need for NHI. And you know what? If, if it improves the quality of healthcare, then Hope for Health will definitely stand behind a form of universal healthcare that may improve access to health for, for all our people. Yeah, and I mean, our, our listeners would be very interested to unpack the NHI in the coming months. So perhaps we'll have you back on to <laughs> with your t shirt and all uh, the non biased view. Uh, could it's you bright share orange. Some, bright orange. <laughs> Could you share some of the successes of Ofelf over the past year it is now? We, we tend to be a little bit less uh, media savvy. So we don't focus a lot of what we do in the media, but we work a lot behind the scenes. Mm. And we were one of the first organizations to identify the issues that the PPE process mm. or the, the PPE uh, procurement process was going yeah. to bring to the country. We identified the fact that people were uh, over-gorging in terms of pricing and, and that there, were, there was supply of PPE, but that supply was not being distributed effectively and it was compromising healthcare. Uh, we drove a lot of work towards uh, sourcing and distributing PPE. Uh, we partnered with organizations in the first wave that were able to manufacture face shields that we distributed to a lot of frontline workers. We engaged with the various parts of the, the, the process from national to provincial levels and to individual practitioners. And we identified avenues and ways in which we could help distribute and get PPE to people. It wasn't entirely successful because in this country, we, we, we have a lot of unnecessary red tape that, that, that we put up and in many cases, that red tape protects the corruption rather than uh, prevents corruption. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that was a little bit of a disappointing uh, component in the whole issue. It was a little bit upsetting for us to, to realize that, you know, we, even before all this drama of the PPE fraud hit, when we saw what was happening, we already knew that this was was inevitable, that there was going to be excessive waste and overpricing, and it, it, it was going to impact on the way that we were able to distribute PPEs. Uh, but we spoke up, we mediated as much as we could, we identified hospitals, we diverted channels, we made sure that the, the needs of health professionals was highlighted. And uh, while doing all of that, the team also focused a lot on education, not just for uh, the patients or for the public, also for health professionals, because the entire COVID uh, situation was very sudden and it caught a lot of our health professionals unaware. And people didn't know how to uh, access information. People didn't know what type of uh, solutions they could implement into their practices, into their personal lives to, to keep themselves safe. People didn't know whether they should wear gloves all the time or they should use a mask with, with, a, with a shield or whether a specific type of mask was preferable um, if they were in close contact with patients. And we, we provided a lot of this information. We engaged with a lot of experts in the field. We had 
online uh, education platforms created. Uh, we, we created all sorts of social media type educational uh, bursts. And uh, in, in, in our little bit, I think we, we, we became quite, I don't want to say an expert, but a lot of people turned to us for advice and support during the, the first wave. As, as the second wave started towards the end of last year, we also focused a lot on the vaccination awareness because vaccines were starting to become more popular. People, people were starting to become aware of all the research and the, the various brands that were being uh, punted. We, we again reinforced the need for all the prevention strategies. And then we also had a, a, an interesting project called uh, Meals for Heroes because we spoke to a lot of our colleagues and they said, you know what, it's all well and good that some people allow us if we're wearing a uniform to get to the front of the queue. But most of us don't get a chance to get to the shop, let alone to get to the front of the queue. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, t- there's no time for bread, milk or any of that stuff. And if they don't have a support structure, they didn't have access to always getting fresh food and things like that. Um, so we decided why not try and in our little capacity to, to actually feed some of these heroes, people that don't have time to take a break and go for lunch. And that's where the Meals for Heroes campaign started uh, towards the end of last year. And between December and now, we estimate we fed between five and 6,000 frontline workers in between Gauteng and KZN public health system, uh, which, which for us is a, it might seem like a small number, but for a small organization, that's a big uh, step. and we're, we're very proud of our team members and, and, and the uh, sponsors and uh, organizations that have rallied behind us to drive this project. I mean, it's phenomenal. I mean, as you say, a small organization that was founded with a mandate to addressing inequities, potentially, and to accomplish so much in such a short space of time and to be that agile when other larger NPOs and other state institutions reacted much slower, it's, it's phenomenal. And I mean, a year on, you guys can, I mean, people can take their hat off to you to the work that, that you, you are doing. Long may continue. I did want to touch on just two things that you mentioned. The first, I mean, just to highlight that this, the nature and the purpose of this podcast speaks to exactly what you, you said earlier about you know, the, there's so much misinformation and especially in the early stages. Yeah, you're right. I mean, people were taking the shoes off when they come in the home and, and sanitizing the Pringles and, and the toilet paper and, and you know, all that kind of things that we know now on doesn't really add any value, but it, it spoke to a mass sense of anxiety and people needed these leaders to turn to and we didn't have answers. And mm. what little information was distilled at the beginning it sounds like your organization lapped it up and produced it in a very palatable form that was available on social media. And that's, a, that's an incredible feat on its own. The other point that I wanted to make is, is more of a question then. You, you touched on the role of the government and the, the, the gap that you saw that was developing in certain areas. You have a very eloquent phrase on your website that your purpose is not to usurp the efforts of the governments, but to serve as a conduit to ensure sufficient support to both public and private health sectors. Mm. How much of a tightrope is it 
though, because I mean, as you allude to in that statement, these there are certain certain tasks that the government should do, and that they should have done. How did you work that tightrope, and I mean, continue to work as well? Forgetting health, the government as a whole has one duty, and that is to protect its citizens. Mm-hmm. Whether that's through the military, whether that's through proper health care, whatever, whatever the tools they use, one of the core purposes of a government is to protect their citizens. Mm-hmm. And when COVID hit, I think the, the, the focus was on trying to manage or trying to understand the, the disease or the virus. And a lot of the the, the, the systems that the government should have focused on and, and created and streamlined got abused by our existing tender processes and our existing procurement issues and the, 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 the cracks in the system that corruption has, has created over the last two decades or so. And COVID was, wasn't anything new in terms of how we administered things. Uh, we, we, we administer social grants and we sometimes do that badly. And we, we yeah. administer ETOLs and we sometimes do that badly. Yeah. And the same, the same system, we didn't create a new system uh, free of corruption. And that was the problem. Yeah. And that is where the red tape that we have, it's, it's years and years of bureaucracy that somehow a select few have control over and are able to manipulate so that they can financially benefit from. Mm-hmm. And we found that, we found that people were, were, were scoring hundreds of millions of, of rands worth of tenders. Um, we, were, we were sanitizing empty buildings that were not used, that would, would never have been contaminated in the first place. And, and while, the, while the Department of Health started to try and get a hold of the virus, the, the procurement process started to milk the funds that were that were available and that that process even though we identified some of the issues even though we proposed solutions to some of those issues uh, the the bureaucracy is so ingrained into that system that it was very difficult for anybody to say here's a better solution mm-hmm. let's try this way you know and i think that's that's an issue that as a government we seriously need to uh, to be open uh, about we need to be able to accept that yes some of the systems are flawed and compromised but here are one two three options that can work around that and unfortunately both in the first and the second wave because we can see it now with how we've 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 handled some of the management of covid issues the vaccines and the issues with with some of the unproven uh, drugs on the market and now that we have fake vaccinations the government still hasn't found a way to streamline what they need to do. And uh, as such, organizations such as ours will continually have to work very hard to try and assist without detracting because you can't, you, you shouldn't as an organization uh, offer things that, that completely go against what the government is trying to implement. But hopefully, now that there's there's a lot of voices being raised, the government will start to to listen a little bit better and, and implement some of the solutions so that we have an effective vaccine rollout program, so that we have better healthcare management, so that we don't have hospitals with 
2,000 staff and only 200 vaccines, you know. Things like this can be predicted. Things like this can be uh, preempted. But for some odd reason, if we don't listen to people, we tend to remain in a bubble that's oblivious to the risks or to the, to the challenges that may come until it's too late. And then we prove to be a, a reactionary approach, which wastes time and, and, and has proven over the last year and a bit to have wasted money as well. One of those voices comes from the C19 People's Coalition. Many listeners might be aware of the organization. Could you briefly share what their mandate is, as well as the connection between Hope for Health and C19 People's Coalition? So uh, Hope for Health supports the, the C19 Coalition. And they, their focus has been on, on driving education and, and promotion of health specific to COVID-19. And they've done a lot of work in terms of educating and educational material. They've, they've, they've created material that's accessible in all or, or in a number of languages uh, that can be used on a wider range of our population. Um, because we also found over the, over the last year or so that um, a lot of the information being disseminated was on, on certain channels which excluded a lot of our population mm. from actually accessing that information, you know. And the C-19 Coalition seems to have identified those gaps and has tried to, to drive education towards a wider range of our, our population, young and old, in multiple languages, in rural areas, in the cities, and all of that. And as uh, Hope for Health, we've supported this. Uh, we've lent our expertise, our experience, our team's experience. We, we, we get involved in whatever discussions they have. And we hope that we add a little bit of value to the big work that they are doing as a, as a coalition. In recent times, I mean, the, the C19 People's Coalition, as well as your organization, Hope for Health, have been focusing on vaccination and vaccination rollout and some of the inequity around vaccination rollout. And the inequity really speaks to all those points that you mentioned earlier, that the track record of the government has not been good. And these systems that are already in place are not optimized. And us as civil society have little faith in, based on that track record, um, that, that there will be uh, an equitable vaccination rollout. And as an example, a strong call from the C19 People's Coalition is to include undocumented people into the vaccination schedule. First of all, is that something that Hope Health supports and how would that tangibly look? How, how, what are the practical ways in which to incorporate everybody, undocumented, foreigners, um, uh, anybody else that doesn't have an ID, for example, into a program like that? And lastly, why is it so important from both a human rights perspective as well as a overall vaccination perspective? So yes, we, we, we definitely support the need for all people in the country, whether you're documented or undocumented, to, to have access to the vaccine, because we cannot as a country aim to, to, to achieve what they're calling herd immunity um, if there's a huge percentage of the population who we don't protect and who don't contribute towards this herd immunity. It's not their fault. It's not 
the Department of Health's fault that uh, many of them, some some are completely illegal uh, and here for whatever reason they, they they may be, but a lot of of people who are undocumented uh, in this country is also because we have failures in our systems to adequately register them, uh, to properly uh, document them, to get permits and all the necessary paperwork done as well. So we cannot entirely uh, rule against people based on some of our in inefficiencies either. Mm -hmm. So as far as we are concerned, if we want to, to vaccinate or we want to roll out any form of protection, it needs to extend to all within our borders. Later on, the system can identify the reasons for people not being documented and whatever those issues may be. But we're talking about children, we're talking about yeah. uh, people with comorbidities, we're talking about the elderly. As a country, we have uh, a duty to ensure that we don't compromise the rights of people, whether they are documented or undocumented. And I, I think coming out of the president's office, he did say that everybody would receive vaccines or access to vaccines. He didn't say every documented yeah. South African with a correct passport or ID would be yeah. would would. David said everyone yeah. would have access. So, uh, if we were to hold the president to his words, then everyone, documented or undocumented, should be uh, free of any uh, stigma. They should be free of any. Uh, possible victimization or anything that may be associated with the fact that they may be undocumented and they should be able to easily access the same quality of vaccinations that citizens of this country access. And yeah, I mean, again, in, in a civil society and and as NPOs and NGOs and other voices for, for, for equity in the country, these are the absolutely the, the words that we should be holding the president uh, to account for. Beyond vaccination and vaccination rollout, what are other areas of inequity that you as an organization have noticed since the 8th of March 2020, when, since we had our first case essentially in the country? What has your experience been like? Who are the groups of people that are most marginalized? I mean, a strong focus of your organization is on healthcare workers, but beyond that, who are the other groups of people that desperately need help and support? As a country, we have, we have a shocking separation between the haves and the have-nots. Mm. And, and this originated way back prior to the years of democracy, maybe even prior to the formal years of apartheid, where we had segregated development and we had a, a cluster of those who, who were deemed wealthy and, and first-grade citizens and those who weren't. And those repercussions still exist in the in the in the new South Africa, it shouldn't, but unfortunately, it still does. And we, as a country, followed the WHO and all the other recommendations, and we told people, "You must wash hands." But then we didn't give people access to water. <laughs> we told people the correct levels of alcohol versus this and that in, in terms of sanitizers, and then we said it's 180 rand a bottle. And then we told people we can only afford to give you 350. Mm. Now, how do we ensure we protect our people when we have created an environment that disables them in terms of accessing what we have just advised them to access? Mm. Um, masks. I mean, forget, forget the fact that the capitalists in this country have 
gorge the price of masks. What has the state done to make masks accessible to pensioners, to those on disability grants, to those on, on the 350 rand grant? We say, okay, no, it's fine. You could use a cloth. Even a dishcloth is expensive. And we didn't create options. We didn't give people things to say, we're in a pandemic. Your government cares about you. So here's a basket full of things that will keep you and your family safe. We didn't do that. We, we didn't speed up access to water. We didn't improve sanitation in, in, in schools. We didn't even respond to the fact that thousands of teachers passed away mm. teaching children. And we, we've moved on. We've just kept moving, despite the fact that COVID itself made the number of poorer people larger. It increased the poor population. And we did nothing except maybe that uh, 350 rand grant, which was so erratic and nobody knew whether you're going to receive it this month or the next. And that is a big issue that as a country, forget, it, forget COVID. As a country, we need to be able to say, what has happened? Why have we not prioritized our own people? And why have we not found solutions 25 years into democracy where the situation that our government has enabled has caused people to become sick? And until we can be able to answer questions like that, we are, we are going to constantly repeat the same problems every election period, and, and, and this is not a, I'm not, I'm not choosing political parties or anything because the, these type of questions should have been raised by other political parties also. So nobody's more guilty of this. Political parties in South Africa need to find a way to guide our country to start uplifting our people, full stop. And until they do that, we're just growing the population that is pretty much a victim of our own government. It's such a powerful point that you raise. It's a question that we need to ask ourselves constantly. What is the, the social determinant of COVID-19 as the disease on the medical aspects of what are the social determinants of who gets uh, severely ill and dies? But what are more importantly, I think, the social determinants or the social dimension to the impacts of COVID-19 in general? from a lockdown perspective, economic stability perspective, these are the set of questions that affect far more people than the minutiae of people that will actually get sick from it. And yeah. you highlighted so, so, so eloquently, and it, it, it probably speaks to where we need to be headed in the next phase of this pandemic. The first year for us has been about understanding the emergency. And you, you said it earlier on when you said we, we were still trying to understand the the virus and how the virus affects us. But now we have to understand how we affect each other in light of the virus. And that's what we're still trying to wrap our heads around. And there are many equity considerations in that. And it's probably now the phase where we can start to focus on the social aspects a lot more closely. Now that we understand the, you know, now that the PPE is sorted out, now that the vaccine is on its way, in the next medium to long term, this is probably where we need to focus. And it brings me to my next set of questions. What, what does the future hold for you as an organization? You, you, you highlighted the, the vaccine rollout as an important tenant of, of the next phase for you in the COVID pandemic and beyond. What are your next steps? 
And I think very importantly, who are the people that, and organizations you want to partner with and who would you encourage to join and, and support and, and assist? For an organization like ours to, to continue, the, the stakeholders that we actively need to continue engaging with these other organizations in the health sector, whether they whether they unionized uh, organizations representing health professionals, whether they're organizations promoting access to, to care, whether they're organizations providing care, so volunteer organizations that drive the provision of health services. Those are organizations that we would constantly need to work with because COVID-19 in this country may not come to an end as quick as we would like, but it will come to an end. And at some point, we're going to get a hold of this disease. Better better vaccine options are going to be available. Herd immunity will, will at some point be achieved and it will be a bad memory, but it will it, we will move on. But what COVID-19 has highlighted is the cracks in our health system. Mm. Uh, at this point, we cannot say it's cracks in our public health system. It's, it's cracks in our health system. The entire health system, public and private, crumbled under the strain of one significant medical issue. And moving forward, if we don't find solutions, we're going to constantly see issues like this happening where certain people have a different access or different quality of care and others receive far less. Um, where, where, where if you are wealthy enough, you can hop on a plane and go get care out of the country while the rest of your country suffers. And these are things as a country we need to work on. These are things that uh, Hope for Health and other organizations need to start uh, standing up for and, and promoting. I think earlier I did mention uh, universal health care. Not everybody agrees with NHI, but I think most people agree that we need some form of universal uh, health coverage that provides a more equitable distribution of health care to people. And as long as universal health coverage is something that, that is needed, we will continue to engage with government organizations or, or the different uh, legs of the, of, of the Department of Health. And yeah, to assist us, we need people who are prepared to volunteer, to assist with uh, education, to assist with creating impactful media and social media content, uh, to assist with fundraising. Because one of the big issues is is to create sufficient funds to drive some of these projects. Um, there's a lot we'd like to do, uh, but a lot we can't because finances become key element. And as a small organization, we, we need as much support in terms of uh, raising funds and getting in people who, and organizations who would uh, financially support some of these activities. And yeah, uh, we would hope. We would hope that as we grow, we'd get more volunteers so that this becomes uh, an organization that lives well beyond the pandemic. COVID has drawn people's attention very acutely to a health problem for the past 18 months, more so than, than, than any other global issue uh, for such a sustained period. It really is unprecedented. It's highly unlikely that, you know, barring another worldwide pandemic, that we will have such sustained attention worldwide uh, on a, a global health issue. How do we focus or target the public's attention onto global health priorities outside of COVID and outside of the pandemic? 
how do we capture this essence and say, let's apply the same focus to HIV. Let's just apply the same focus to obesity, for example. To talk outside of COVID, I'm going to link it back to COVID. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one, one other thing that we've learned through this whole process is how information is interpreted and how people respond to information. Up until COVID personally touches you or your family, a lot of people believe that it wasn't really an issue mm. and avoided all the preventative measures and, and spoke out of turn and did all sorts of things that may have hindered what we were aiming for in terms of proper prevention. And that is the same type of mindset that we, that we put on TB. That is the same type of mindset that we put on HIV. That is the same type of mindset that we put on uh, even simple diseases like diabetes. We wait until we get diabetes before we try and figure out a solution for diabetes. And, and it's a very, very silly approach to, to how we understand healthcare. And I think the, 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 the best thing any organization uh, that's focused in the health sector can do is to, to not focus on the management of the disease, but to find ways to educate people prior to them becoming a diabetic patient or a TB patient or things like that. And until we can empower people enough to make good health decisions, we're going to keep running, trying to catch our tail with all these other diseases that we have um, that has prominence in South Africa. And that is the reason why TB hasn't entirely been uh, kept under control. That is why in certain uh, communities, especially the Indian community, diabetes isn't as controlled as it should. It's a simple condition. We all know it. We, 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 we know at least 30% of our families that may have diabetes. But we don't stop it. We wait for it to come up in the next generation. And all we have to do is understand the cause and find a solution to prevent uh, becoming a statistic. And I think that's the main thing that we should, should have learned from, from COVID is that having lots of words around education doesn't necessarily translate to people understanding a disease. And maybe it's time we changed the way we educate people. I'm not an education specialist. Uh, so I, I, I don't want to, 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 to propose theories on, on how to, to change education, but that is definitely an issue that we need to focus on. And if we start uh, altering the way people understand health and the, the various diseases that affect us, I think within the next 10 years, we can definitely change how we are addressing some of the big uh, issues that we have in South Africa. Not an education specialist, but you're certainly someone that inspires hope. <laughs> Let's hope. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure. I think I speak on behalf of all my listeners when I say long may it continue. It's very easy to forget where we came from. It's, it's only a year since you know people were trying to hold to toilet paper and I didn't have access to PPE. We've come such a long way 
and many of the behind the scenes, as you mentioned, successes are due to organizations like yourself fighting tirelessly for other people and for our, our heroes, as you call them, on the front line. So thank you very much for joining me and I, I hope you enjoy this and hopefully we can collaborate in the future. Definitely. Thank you for having me.